Music Publishing Podcast, Episode 5. This is the Music Publishing Podcast with your host, Dennis Tobensky. Join Dennis in his weekly nuts and bolts conversations with composers, performers, and other arts professionals as they navigate their careers as concert musicians in the 21st century. And now your host, Dennis Tobensky. Hello, and welcome to the Music Publishing Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Tobensky. This week, I'm joined by Aaron Rodgers, who I've known for a couple of years, and who it turns out lives just a few blocks away from me in my neighborhood. She's an excellent composer and saxophonist, and also works as a production manager for Peer Music Classical. Now, this was the first episode I've recorded with the guest actually in the room with me, so I was a little nervous about having a setup with only one microphone for two people, but it went way smoother than I expected. Until, of course, Google Hangouts stopped broadcasting 20 minutes in and gave me zero indication that the live stream was just a black screen with no sound. For 70 minutes. Fortunately, I've learned to make a separate backup recording of the audio, so thankfully, nothing was lost. Of course, since everything seemed to be fine, as far as we were concerned, we were just having a fun conversation with a touch of vodka. So, that said, this is my conversation with Aaron Rodgers. Welcome to the Music Publishing Podcast. I'm here today with, uh, in my living room today, not my, my kitchen, <laughs> with the composer and saxophonist Aaron Rodgers. Uh, so Aaron, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, uh, I'm a musician. I am a composer and a saxophonist and uh, sometimes performing artist. And I work in music publishing and I've worked uh, with a company called Pure Music Classical for 10 years can't believe it's been that long. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask. And it's surprising because I've been a musician for longer, but of <laughs> course that's just normal. Um, yeah, and uh, I live in New York City. I moved here about 10 years ago, and I live in the same neighborhood as Dennis, and we got to know each other a little bit through just talking publishing and mm -hmm. talking all things music. Um, I run a, a number of different groups in the city, um, and some of them... Um, are more sort of from the composer angle, some from more of the on, well, performer angle as a, as a, as a saxophonist, and uh, keeps me pretty busy. It's sort of, you know, my replacement for, for the family life. <laughs> <laughs> music, is, music is sort of all in everything. So that's, that's what I do. Nice, yeah. nice. Uh, I wanted to kick off uh, by actually talking about, um, well, we should, before we go on to the uh, topic, where can we find you online? I'm going to ask again at the end, but uh, what are what are what's your web presence? My web presence uh, website is Aaron M Rogers at dot uh, com. So Aaron E R I N M as in Mary Rogers R O G E R S dot com, and there you can find all sorts of activities, past and future performances, uh, videos of performances, and. Uh, and bio, you know, biography, and of course works, um, all of my compositions, uh, work samples, things like that. Um, Twitter is at erogers23, E-R-O-G-E-R-S-2-3. 
And Facebook, just Aaron Rodgers, and try to find the picture that looks like me. <laughs> I think I'm sitting more like this in my Facebook profile, but something like that. So um, I think that's it. I'm not on Instagram yet, although I kind I'm feeling the feeling the the pressure to get on Instagram. I finally caved. Did you? I finally, just two months ago, maybe not even. Um, I've been very anti Instagram. Me too. Uh, I think because of the filters. Mm. And, I, you know, hashtag no filter. It's like, yeah, good good for you. <laughs> <laughs> you, you successfully used your phone's camera. Good job. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, mm. uh, Darian said, you should do it. And, and he doesn't do it much, but he's on there. And I said, okay. And I've been walking around the neighborhood a lot. So that, that's a nice way to document those walks. Just snap yeah. a picture of something weird that I see. And, and there you go. And, and that, that's all I need to do. You're part of a community. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, my fear is that everybody's kind of migrating from the, from the Facebook, Twitter world over to Instagram. Mm-hmm. It just feels more empty where I am. So I don't want to miss that boat, I guess. So we'll see. Yeah, I, I moved away from, from Twitter. I've been talking about this a lot with the launch of the podcast. You know, I, I've created a Twitter handle, a Twitter profile, uh, Facebook page, and I'm trying to get a little bit of traction there, but I realized personally, I've not really touched Twitter in about three years. Oh, really? I, I did, I I had a well, this uh, the last time that we really hung out was uh, at a Thai restaurant uh, on 56th yeah, yeah. um, right across from my old job at New York City Center, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I was just doing finance crap for a I remember that <laughs> for, the, for a non-profit theater and I was bored out of my skull all day because I was just a, a glorified accountant and so I would I'd just be on Twitter and Facebook all yeah, day yeah. you know doing things musically with or at least talking to musicians and I think we, we might have started interacting because of that right yeah um, but once I left the day job then my time is mine now and I don't want to waste my time. <laughs> right, so all of a sudden it's like... Uh, I still waste my time on Facebook, but not so much on Twitter. <laughs> no, it's so true. It's sort of like that, you, you sort of need that incoming, you know, that that flow from the outside world mm-hmm. when you're at the desk all day. And besides that and trying to just keep your posture, it's oh. like, yeah, that sort of, that that's easy to the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah, it, you're typing, so it, it you look busy. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, music publishing honestly isn't isn't quite as boring as finance. I yeah. have to say. So there's a there's a lot there's a lot to keep you busy every day. Um, but yeah, it helps to it helps in that field to also have a, a social media feed mm-hmm. just to be in the know of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Okay, what opera company is is producing what? Mm-hmm. You know, who's saying what about it? There's that aspect of just being in the know yeah. and sort of having you know the excuse and the you know the the extra yeah. reason to kind of to follow that that trail is is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, Actually, I'm going to bounce in my my little notes of what what I want to cover today, talking about being in publishing. Uh, So you're a production manager Mm -hmm. at Pure Music Classical. Mm -hmm. Um, What do do you do? (laughs) What do I do? What does that mean? Right, right. (laughs) Production manager is a title, and uh, every 
job has a title, um, and typically you want to keep the title short, so you, you don't really have a paragraph of a title, where mm. in, in reality that's probably what my job would need in order mm. to describe all the things I do all day. And that it goes in, you know, it's anything from uh, working with uh, calls coming in and mm. looking to purchase or rent music mm. you know, the, uh, from composers that we publish, to dealing with our distributors, both sales and rental distributors, to creating contracts... Uh, for grand rights to creating contracts for you know photocopying permission mm. things you know as basic as that uh, reproducing excerpts in in educational dissertations reproducing excerpts for you know books that are to be sold um, to uh, managing an office of employees to uh, to making sure that uh, UPS is coming every day and picking up shipments, <laughs> mm-hmm. and to uh, editing music, sheet music uh, that composers send in errata for, or that librarians from major orchestras send in, as well as working with those major mm-hmm. orchestras one on one, just coming up with corrections following a premiere, uh, making sure those corrections get back into the music so that the next performance is, is more flawless mm-hmm. than the first. Um, and really everything in between so mm-hmm. I, I, I can't really think of, of what it is that I do all day at this point having done it for so long but it really encapsulates everything nice mm-hmm. nice I'm sure there's I'm sure there are a lot of corrections that come in from those those performances there are yeah and there are corrections that come in from performances of works that are older than you can imagine so (laughs) (laughs) when you know the fact that ives symphony number two still has corrections Mm -hmm. you know when a when an orchestra librarian goes through it and finds things um that should tell you something about the process it's it's not a it's not a one and done process when a composer finishes a work it's Mm -hmm. something that it's just the beginning of the life of the work that first performance Mm -hmm. um and these are these are things that are just ongoing i mean there's just they're just so so many little <laughs> little things here and there that you know the there's a staccato missing in the flute line or mm-hmm. there's you know or the situation where the composer is a composer of new music and mm-hmm. this is a premiere and they want to change something after it they don't yeah. like that that section it didn't mm-hmm. work um you know nobody is you know really fully simulating the performance prior to the premiere so mm. there there are things that become reality after that premiere and composers some composers more than others want to constantly change throughout the life of the piece yeah you think of someone like Boulez who just constantly thought of every work as sort of an evolution of that work where it was it was never finished it was the beginning of it mm-hmm. in the first performance and then it you know over time would change and mm. by the life of you know by the end of 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 his life the work was still you know that was when the work ended it was never finished Hmm. so I think of that some of the composers are more like that yeah Uh, others are more one and done which I encourage (laughs) (laughs) yeah that 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 makes sense I and uh I do a lot of well over the past couple of years I've done engraving for for a couple of you know composers with names and uh like you know a lot of Philip Glass's works have come uh, bits of them, bits and pieces have come through my office over there, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's it's interesting getting all the, you know, getting it together, doing as good of a proof as as you can based on his. I mean, it's it, it's manuscript, it's it's handwritten. Mm-hmm. My, my friend Corey is the one who who really does that and farms some of it out to me. Okay, uh, and then after afterward, it's back into the. Okay, it's been premiered now. 
pull up your files again, or I'm, I'm sending you new files, and yeah. we need the corrections we need. I think he right. mostly does the corrections, right. but, but I know that there's an opera that was just premiered recently, I think. We're going to have to go in and redo most of the parts. Mm-hmm. Because there mm-hmm. are a lot of revisions, and there, because of the time crunch, there were a lot of mistakes. Yep. That we there was no way for us to know. You don't know, yeah. It's a tough process because a lot of times, I mean, it just happens. Composers push deadlines. Yeah. And then as a publisher, you'll get it a week before and you've got to extract a whole library of orchestral parts from this one score. And then you've got the proofing process. So the extraction comes, the editors put put together the parts in the format that they need. But you don't know if it's right or not, so there's a proofing process. And mm-hmm. that process requires someone else to come in. Mm-hmm. It's always better to have someone with another set of eyes. Absolutely. Never proof your own work. Oh. Never. <laughs> um, and they, yeah, they have to take their time with it. Mm-hmm. And the more time they take, the better job they'll do. Yeah. And so as a composer, if you can just get the work done three or four weeks ahead of time, mm-hmm. it creates a schedule that's much more uh, beneficial to you and your music. Um, oh. And, you know, proofers will do their best that goes back, you know, Mm. then it comes back after the librarian gets it. And there's just always things. I understand that that process really well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Another composer who who will not be named. Uh, I'm I'm working with this guy, Corey, and and one other person. We sort of have a a small company that does engraving, but we don't have a lot of work at the moment. um, It's new. But there was a a well-known youngish composer who wanted us to do uh, a large-scale work for her. And she she said, oh yeah, I need the piano vocal score. Rehearsals start in two weeks. It needed to be reduced and the reduction proofread. Then several weeks after that, she needed all of the extracted and proofed parts. <laughs> it's like yeah it, we, it's possible if you don't eat and you don't yeah, shower yeah. and you don't <laughs> and fortunately she knew that if if a we took the project because we could reasonably say we we can't deliver mm-hmm. you know we so we're not even comfortable right. taking this if if we're if we can't finish the project you know and two she agreed to our price she knew that she would be paying out the nose. Right. And, right. And un- unfortunately, it didn't. It didn't happen. There were some communi- communication issues, so it didn't didn't end up happening. But yeah, like that last minute thing can really make all the difference in the in the quality oh, of, yeah. of the materials. Absolutely. And and this is another thing when it's you know, a younger composer, maybe they don't they haven't had that experience to mm-hmm. know what what the process is like when you're dealing with third parties, mm-hmm. and it, you have to give them time and you don't mm-hmm. even you don't have to you know give them give them months but mm-hmm. they need a reasonable amount of time to yeah. do it or mm-hmm. and and if you're in a situation where you can you know basically call your own price for mm-hmm. that for that extra time crunch then that's great but a lot of times there's there's sort of in, in the old school publishing model there isn't that opportunity for the publisher to mm-hmm. to say no we can't do this it's you know it's on them too because the publisher represents yeah. the work and mm-hmm. therefore you know they need to they need to step fu- step up and put their best foot forward mm-hmm. in order to make that work happen they're 50% of that representation really yeah so there's no backing out it's sort of yeah, yeah. And, and publishers have well the pe- people who work for publishers have the advantage of either 
being on salary or, you know, having their relationship with, with the publisher mm-hmm. and, and saying, yeah, okay, we as the, this large company have the funds mm-hmm. to pay your, pay what you're going to charge us because we know. Right. We, we, we know this situation. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. And uh, I mean, there are many times where we have to bring in extra staff for mm-hmm. a project, um, you know, or two projects come in at the same time and there's that crunch. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, it's it's not uncommon. It happens. Um, but, you know, it's sort of that threshold where a composer gets to a point where there's a big opportunity. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it, you know, with everything else, it becomes a, a situation where they can't do everything. Yeah. They can't you know, engrave the work at the piano vocal, get the parts out, deal with all of the logistics, mm-hmm. do the grand rights, do all of the things. Mm-hmm. And that's where the publisher comes in. Mm-hmm. And so, um, if you do, uh, if you do want to, 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 uh, self publish and to, to, uh, <laughs> to really be, to be successful at it, you, I mean, be prepared for those moments mm-hmm. and be ready to, you know, have a list of people that you're ready to call mm-hmm. to help um, with those, with, with that third party work that needs to be farmed out because mm-hmm. there's, I mean, there are advantages to being published and there are advantages to self-publishing mm-hmm. and, and, and just being ready for that, knowing that that, that will come and what to do at that moment is. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is, that, that does seem to be a, a big advantage of, of working with a, an established traditional publisher mm-hmm. that, when it's needed, the resources are gen- generally there mm-hmm. to cover what needs to happen. Because right. they, they, they're invested. Mm-hmm. They're invested in the work, they're invested in you, and if the materials aren't together, it reflects more poorly on them than it does on you as the composer. It reflects poorly on you as the composer. Right. But, you know, especially if it's really your fault. Right, right. But it does, like... As the the company that represents you, right? Yeah, it's true, and I mean, it's. <laughs> it, I mean, it's happened before, where where the publishers become the fall guy. I mm-hmm. mean, I've worked with the company for ten years. It mm-hmm. happens, and it's okay. I mean, we you know you do we do our best, mm-hmm. but for the composer to have that little bit of space, I think is is healthy too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are things that you don't think think about that could come up. Um, it's not just the engraving, the that work. Mm-hmm. I mean, once you get it to PDF, would you still need to print it? Mm-hmm. You know, and and Kinko's is, has not gotten any better in terms of customer <laughs> service okay. <I> <laughs> or ability to print and, and and for their machines to work. Staples is even worse. I mm-hmm. mean, you 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 send the music to a publisher. I mean, you're, we're talking getting the parts at nine and a half by 13 basic MOLA standards mm-hmm. so that an orchestra will read them. I mean, a lot of unionized orchestras won't even look at letter size parts. Mm-hmm. So there's those aspects that, yeah. you know, things need to be formatted in a certain way. And, you know, these, these are all things that can become pitfalls. So. Yeah. And I've recently, who, somebody was telling me recently that although this has sort of been in the, the MOLA standards or in, in, in what they say, Recently, I think it's been more enforced that they won't accept. Hmm. Like they're, they're much more empowered now to not accept that nine and a half or eight and a half by eleven. Interesting. That they're 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 being they're being a little bit more strict on that. Yeah. Which, you know, good good. <laughs> you have to have the the, the standard that mm-hmm. that works. Well, and that's part of the orchestral union, mm-hmm. and that's how those 
folks also make a living. That's how mm-hmm. they survive and with their careers. So there is an importance to that. And uh, yeah. to find out all of these things, I mean, you can do it. It's, you know, there are, there are ways to do it. And that's why I say self-publishing has its advantages too. Just have mm-hmm. to be very organized. Yeah. Um, so you, being at a, a publisher, I, I'm going to keep checking my phone a little bit because I know that people are commenting. Um, but to working with a, uh, at a traditional publisher, I'm sure you've, uh, hi, Edwin, Edwin Dell says hello. Oh, hi, Ed. He's excited that you're here. I'm excited that you're here. <coughs> hi, um, Ed. Hi, Ed. Hi, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've learned, you've certainly learned a lot of things being at Peer Music for your, for your own compositional career uh can you talk about some of some of the things that you've sure um very on a very basic level uh how to make a score and there's a you know what size of score is appropriate for the uh for the players to be able to read um with with you know published scores there's a variety of different sizes eight and a half by 11 is obviously the one that we all know and mm-hmm. and is the easiest it's letter size it's our standard size for pretty much everything mm-hmm. um but not for sheet music sheet music in general is sold at nine nine by 12 size and um that's a folio size there's uh like we were just talking about parts orchestral parts are nine and a half by 13 10 by 13 mm-hmm. you can get away with that's that's the mola standard for parts uh, full scores, conductor scores, uh, podium type scores are 11 by 14. These are all in inches, by the way. And uh, those are um, those are just basic things. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> creating a score when it's over 40 pages, you're gonna you're gonna want to coil bind that score. Mm-hmm. There's really you know unless you can you know string bind it or glue bind it, these uh, they just don't go together. Um, they just don't staple well <laughs> above 40 pages. I mean, you're you're taking a risk, um, but uh, Every score should have a cover page with the composer's name, the title of the piece. If you have a logo, uh, it should have the instrumentation of the piece on the cover. <clears throat> title page um, is the is the first sort of text uh, page that you'll see after the cover, um, and followed by front matter. And front matter is encouraged mm-hmm. um, uh, from a performer standpoint. I love to see front matter. Performers generally do. Um, that can include uh, bio, which is optional. Um, a program note, which is highly encouraged, just to talk about the piece, and uh, and then performance notes. So, do you have notation in your piece that needs to be translated? Do you need a legend? Do you have symbols? Explain them all. Explain any sort of other you know other notes of the piece that are important. Put that all you know in the front, and call we call that front matter. First page of music. Uh, title of the piece above it in italics your dedication, and of course these are all stylistic things that this is the way I do it. Things that I would say you should have, but you know you won't see them in the same way on every score, and every different publisher has a different house style. On the left of the front page, um, if the score is transposed, you want to say transposed score. If it's in C and it's maybe not implied that it would be in C, you want to put you know score in C. Mm-hmm. You'll also put the author if there is a text. Um, you can put that over the text by that author, um, and uh, and then your name as a composer on the right to the right of the title with the year underneath. Um, these are things that I do for my scores now, having looked at you know, <laughs> thousands upon thousands of scores. Um, and, uh, yeah, just there are, there are a variety of other house style things. Um, a lot of the notation programs now generally cover those when you, yeah, the, I mean, you can kind of derive them almost mm-hmm. from like Finale and Sibelius, yeah, the way so, they set up a yeah, score. Yeah, the Sibelius default for your, your first page is, is, I think, sort of the standard. It's kind of nice that at least that default you can 
trust. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of them I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. And there's, it's hard to know these things. Mm-hmm. Um, the, like I said, the house style for various publishers is different. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice that, you know, long-term publishers have house styles. I remember mm-hmm. the first uh, publisher I, I came into contact with was G. Shermer. And David Featheroff at G. Shermer gave me a, a big, thick book about house style and mm-hmm. it was right down to the font and the size that you need to use on every every single mm-hmm. uh, every single entry that you make whether it's your name as the composer or your or your title of the piece it was it was all very controlled and that was really helpful because whether or not you choose to use that same font or mm-hmm. you know you can decide what what to bend and what to break but just having having that guide gave you an indication of the seriousness with which they took that art mm-hmm. art form itself and also the um, these are the things that you need to be considering, mm-hmm. you know, whether you decide not to use them or to use them, it should be a consideration and a, and a decision that's made. So mm-hmm. those are, those are the very basic things I've learned from working at a publisher. Um, there's also a lot I've learned about promotion of work. Um, mm-hmm. and a lot of learned about just, uh, just having scores out, out there for, for people to see. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there are a variety of different platforms you can use, but, uh, the model's kind of shifting away from sending out, physical perusal scores, mm-hmm. you know, to, to take a look at, whether it be for large ensemble uh, conductors, artistic directors. Um, and it's kind of moving more towards like an electronic perusal or a PDF. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with some of the large publishers, it's still, it's, you know, it's, it's still nerve wracking to send out a PDF. So mm-hmm. there, there are various platforms, online platforms you can use for perusals mm-hmm. and you can use these on your website as well. It's, um, you know, ways to embed yeah. music without having it be uh reproducible um issue yeah is- issue is the one that, that Ish- i i use you use I, issue yeah it's one of uh, for those of you who don't know it's issuu.com uh it's a really great way to upload your scores uh and then you can embed them into your site or you can link to that that their site and it's not downloadable unless you say it is it's not printable unless you say it is uh, and you can even set it up so that people can order prints directly from issue. And I think you set the price. I don't remember. Uh, I don't actually use it for that, I but I've either. seen that it has that yeah, capability. Yeah, I, I know it has. I, I think there might be, you might have to pay a monthly fee or something. There, mm-hmm. there was something about it that, that made me say, I don't want that particular feature. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, that I use that. Um, does Pure Music use it? Pure Music uses Issue for perusal scores. Mm-hmm. And G. Shermer, right? I think Shermer does as well. There might be some others, because it's the it's kind of the main platform, at least one of the first that came out with that. One of the first that came out with the ability to display a score without being able to download it. Yeah. Or to hack it, the download. And it's a really kind of beautiful interface. Mm-hmm. Once you're in the score, the you, the way it turns the page for you is. It's really nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's very nice. They've done a good job, and um, and the intention there is is really it's noble. It's about publishing work um, mm. for you know large companies all the way down to small individuals, and to allowing there to be a, a trail of credit for that work, which is of course one of the big issues mm. with publishing. It's like there's so much online, and there are so many sites that are sharing and mm-hmm. and offering copyrighted works for free or no money and mm. um it's just simply a like a, a 
breaking of the law to do that. Mm -hmm. And so um, a lot of my work with with the MPA, with the Music Publishers Association, which is uh, a large body uh, of of heads of uh, of music sales trade organizations that have come together and and, and basically our biggest fight is to stop the mm-hmm. spread of of pirated music online mm-hmm. and um i mean there's there's just so much of it it's sort of uh it's 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 like playing whack-a-mole you mm-hmm. know the game you, you can play at the fair like it's it's like you stop one site and I won't even say what because <laughs> I don't want anybody going there. You, you you stop them. You put a lot of effort and, and mm-hmm. a lot of you know a lot of resources into into shutting down this site, and then another one pops up. and And you're starting. We're starting to get to the point where we're starting to see at least the big organizations like YouTube, aka Google, mm-hmm. um, now starting to uh, provide a more user friendly platform to license music, which mm-hmm. is really. You know, a huge stepping stone. Yeah. So, and and a lot of the lyric sites are too. And people mm-hmm. don't really think about lyric sites as being something that's you know breaking copyright. You, I know. You, you know your favorite pop tune. You go online and it's like, oh, there are the lyrics. Cool. That's probably not licensed by the publisher of those lyrics. And mm-hmm. that's a writer. That's a poet. That's a you know a, a, a songwriter. A, somebody who's written those. And and you know you're on this site giving money to that whoever owns that URL for their advertising Mm -hmm. and they're making money off of this person's work on there. And that's, that's just one of the many ways. Yeah. (laughs) I know that uh, it's, I didn't for the longest time, it never struck me that that was, that those were, those sites were, were a problem. I, I, and somebody, somebody mentioned it. I was like, Oh wait. Yeah. Because there's the places that are just lyrics. There's places with guitar tabs or chord symbols. And they're, claiming to be there to help you like mm-hmm. oh you want to know how to play your fa- your favorite pop song sure, on the guitar yeah. or on the piano or whatever here it is meanwhile yeah it's mostly not licensed and they're making how much money with all of the banner ads on the i mean mo- most of the page is banner ads mm-hmm. and they're making money just by you being there yeah Absolutely, it, and we we see that as being free, and so we're like, oh, fine, right? And I didn't f- pay, I didn't pay mm-hmm. for it, mm-hmm. so therefore I'm not a part of the problem because I didn't fork over, fork over my money for, right? But you're there, and your eyes on that site is the mm-hmm. monetary value. I mean, and you can tell a site. It's like everyone knows the freer it is, the more click throughs you have to do to actually get mm-hmm. to the con- the content that you're trying to get to. <laughs> right? It's like they've you know every time the, the, it's it's cents, it's dollars, it adds up. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and again, it isn't—it isn't necessarily the most harmful thing when you think of it in the one-time way. I'm just gonna mm-hmm. jump jump on here and try to find this free sheet music really quick for my Christmas gig that I'm doing with my with my family or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And it, it just—it. But when you really, you know, when you really take a larger view of the problem, it's mm-hmm. it's millions of these things happening every day, um, millions of people profiting off of other people's content, copyrighted content. Exactly. Um, so. I mean, without getting too far into the piracy debate, which can probably take up the rest of, of the episode, um, I'll just say that that that, um, that 
there, there also needs to be a way to, to easily license. And that's kind of where this started, the idea of um, like lyric sites now mm-hmm. licensing composers and mm-hmm. understanding this is the law and this is mm-hmm. what, what we'll do. So yes, we license you, you get a portion of these banner ads if you want that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, but, but just making that contact with the original author mm-hmm. is important. And that's, uh, that's, that's, I'm seeing more and more of that. And mm-hmm. because, that's, because the larger organizations have started to do that, I feel like the others will follow suit. Yeah. You know, it'll just, it'll just be that way. Um, but yeah, the, the copyright thing is, is something I've learned a lot about as a composer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just uh, getting your music to ASCAP, making sure that ASCAP re- registers all your performances mm-hmm. in, in order to pay you royalties. Um, as a publisher, I deal a lot with the performance rights organizations, ASCAP, BMI, CSAC. Um, but, uh, you know, as composers just starting out, you might not know that those, are, those organizations are set up for you to receive performance income mm-hmm. for performances of your works. So if you have something played on a, on a concert series at your college, that's, that's something that ASCAP should know about. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and most of the time, educational institutions will, uh, will notify ASCAP or BMI that those, are, those performances are happening and that money will come to you automatically. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it doesn't. And yeah. so, well, th- at least for ASCAP, I, I can't speak for the others, um, for educational performances, band music aside, uh, it's I think it's they call it a survey. So they pick, as I understand this, and I could be I could be wrong on this. Uh, I, I could I could misunderstand the thing, mm-hmm. but as as I understand it, they pick certain dates, and things that happen on those dates are what get surveyed and what get paid out. Oh, because I've had my, my alma mater, you know, Illinois State University. They have commissioned and performed my. A lot of stuff. I mean, just many, many, many performances over the past 15 years. Uh, 15. Yeah. 16. And a lot of those... I, I'll send in the program mm-hmm. to ASCAP because there, there's a there's a function on there. Are you ASCAP or BMI? I'm ASCAP. ASCAP. There, there's the, the way to, to upload your Yeah, you can upload you can, and, and register. And record everything. But even though they have that, and I have a spreadsheet, I have a I have a royalty tracking spreadsheet where I'll I'll put all the pertinent information and the date that I submitted the program. Mm-hmm. But I also make a note: Do I expect a royalty from this? And quite often, if it's educational, I say no. To you know, no, I don't expect it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it shows up. Mm. It'll come in. But most of the things that I say, yeah, it's educational, so I don't expect a yeah, royalty. Yeah. I don't get it, and I've inquired. I've I've emailed and I've called and and said, okay, here's a list of performances, and I want to know, did these hit your survey? And of like the the dozen things that I sent this this one time in particular, they said this one is hit the survey. Mm-hmm. We don't have the program for it, but if you send it to us, we'll pay out. We'll pay, you know, we just need that program. Hmm. So, yeah, the educational stuff is kind of weird, except for band music, because the, every last mm-hmm. band performance, right, right. ASCAP, you know, pays out for that. But the rest, at a big orchestra premiere, yeah. nothing. Nothing. Well, that's really interesting, because I, I guess I've never had that experience where... The, all Anything that I've had that's been performed at a school has been paid out. I've hmm. always seen it. And that's... But maybe within 
the school if there's a you know if it's used for like a master class or used for something that you know they don't deem as being on a concert series <clears throat> now i'm just speaking uh, i have no idea <laughs> yeah I, I i think it is a, a survey thing and and at some point on actually one thing i want to do on 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 the show here not too far in the future is get somebody from each of the the pros to come and talk yeah, about absolutely. their processes. I, I, I want to do that. So everybody at ASCAP, get ready. <laughs> I'm calling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's a uh, it's an interesting that's an interesting conundrum. And and I if I if I remember correctly, at one of the ASCAP workshops, the one where I met Alex Shapiro. For anybody who's listened to episode one, um, there I. They were saying something along those lines. They made a point. So somebody made a point of saying, "All your band stuff will be paid out. The rest, because it's a survey, we can't guarantee it. Mm-hmm. it it's the luck of the draw if we choose that day." Mm-hmm. And I've okay. almost never had the day chosen. <laughs> in in mm-hmm. I've been writing. Yeah, I've been writing for them since two thousand three. So thirteen years. I've only had a handful of yeah performances chosen. Huh. Well, you have a lot of performances. For, with them, definitely. Yeah, yeah. A couple of year, typically. Well, that's a good thing to have the performances anyway. It, yeah. Hey, and they and they record it, so. Mm-hmm. Two thumbs up there. <laughs> no, that's great. It's great. Um, yeah, I, I you know I could look into the lottery system, but. Um, that's something that, you know, we report and they pay out and mm-hmm. it's sort of one of those things I, I guess I've not looked into, but that's a really, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. It's, a, yeah, it's something that I, I want to know, I, I want to know more about, and I think everybody else, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully there are many listeners to this, <laughs> um, currently zero viewers, but that's okay. Uh, I, I think it's something that we should all be aware of. Yeah. Like, different policies on that and yeah I don't, I don't know how bmi handles it i don't know how csac handles it oh i know they're different but similar mm-hmm. yeah the the differences aren't major mm-hmm. but there are differences great so uh la 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 moving on a little bit before we went on air we were talking about the the different ensembles that you're you're a part of you're, oh, okay. you're part of quite a few yeah, um, there are there are quite a few amazing musicians in New York. So mm-hmm. there's sort of a couple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have this thing where it's hard to say no. Um, it's hard to say no to projects and opportunities and different um, different opportunities to collaborate. Mm-hmm. So I I found myself uh, just um, just becoming a, a really big part of a community that sometimes overlaps and sometimes you know crosses paths and when I first moved here um, I got involved uh, with a group called Thing NY uh, mm-hmm. through Paul Pinto who's a composer and um, and multi-instrumentalist singer uh, but really uh, exceptional artist who this is a ton of energy and I remember he approached me after a concert and said hey come jam with us at, at ABC No Rio and so I don't think I showed up to the ABC No Rio jam, but we ended up <laughs> collaborating um, on a project after that. And and Thing and Why was sort of a, uh, it was, it's a, a, an ensemble that's sort of based on improvisation. Uh, mm. Everyone in it's a composer to some extent or a musician that works with improv. And uh, over the years, we've kind of amassed a core group of, of folks, uh, all composers, all 
excellent musicians, all from very, very different back backgrounds. Um, we have uh, our soprano, Gelsie Bell, uh, Paul Pinto, who I mentioned, the mm -hmm. tenor. Um, we have uh, Dave Ruder, a uh, clarinetist, Brooklyn-based clarinetist composer. Um, uh, Jeff Young, violinist and composer from Brooklyn also. And then Andrew Livingston, um, composer and bass player. Um, and certain members of the group will do a lot of touring with pop groups and indie groups. Mm. Others will, you know, more kind of like um, you know, traditional composer types like me, who mm. is more like chamber music. Uh, mm. We've got Gelsey and Paul who are both uh, going to Broadway next year mm. for The Great Comet with nice. Josh Groban. They'll be superstars. Mm. Nice. Um, so we've got a real, real mix of folks. And we get together um, and jam out and improv and put on... We, we do this thing where we collabor collaboratively write together, which mm. is... No, not advisable for everyone, but um, it's sort of a sibling type of uh, of relationship, sibling type of you know, it just feels like a family gathering when we get together. So mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of different you know things at play, and we write we write as, uh, with combinations of imp improvisation and combinations of, of actually writing, sitting and writing down you know thoughts, ideas, um, and we try them all out, and we've put on. Um, large evening length experimental operas for years now we've got three uh, we're just about to come out with uh, well we just had our very large production uh, called this takes place close by it's written about uh, big large scale disasters storms in particular um, that ran for four days at the knockdown center in uh, Maspeth Queens last September mm. which was really really our biggest project and um, and then we have an album coming out with chamber music by myself and and Paul Pinto mm -hmm. that should be out um, in September. So cool. on Gold Bullis Records, check it out. Uh, Thing NY new album and uh, that group is just it's just a fun, free, exciting group of people and and it's sort of like we're always doing sort of the next crazy thing <laughs> you could imagine. So. Um, just I, I don't know if I can describe it. The opera we did was in a 50,000 square foot space, and the audience was mobile, and they moved throughout the entire process from mm. one area of the space to another, and we had lighting designers that would lead them mm. to each different scene, and a set designer who created just different scenarios where um, we sort of profiled different characters that were affected by a large storm in New York mm. City. Some not at all. Some who, you know, had their lights and internet on the whole time and mm -hmm. got seven days off work. Some who were, <laughs> you know, absolutely dragged through the storm. Um, and to the woman who, you know, who perishes in it. And it's like there, there, there were so many different emotions after mm -hmm. after Sandy. Just I'm sure you oh, know, yeah. just having been here. Um, and we were just trying to grapple with some of the the feelings we had. Some of those. Mm -hmm. There's feelings of extreme empathy and sympathy and, mm -hmm. and sadness for all of the damage and then also for the strange feeling of, of disconnectedness for mm -hmm. those of us who weren't affected yeah. in any real way but you know would hear stories or, or mm -hmm. you know feel really terrible and yeah. I mean that's just part of how those those things work so that was that was an intense opera and that was mm -hmm. sort of our last big project and yeah. um, that, that was an intense time yeah we, we, we were unaffected. We, this apartment was not affected, but just up the street, um, a, I don't know why she did it, but a woman was walking her dog, and a tree fell on her, and she died. Jeez. It's, it, it's insane. And I, and I ended up, you know, I was working a block away from the crane, that famous crane right. that was dangling from the top of that 
stupid goddamn tower. <laughs> well, and uh, that crane happened. That was right. That's right near Pure Music office. Yeah, yeah. So we had to use the the cargo entrance for a week mm -hmm. because no one was allowed on 57th Street. Yeah, you know, so you'd go underground and have to loop around and yeah. I mean. <laughs> There's so many crazy things everybody saw. I mean, from the Lower East Side, just being completely in the dark mm -hmm. for weeks. Yeah. So, so strange. Weird. To, yeah, to not being affected. I mean, I mm -hmm. had internet. Mm -hmm. I was I was not affected. I remember going online and looking at some pictures of the storm and seeing mm -hmm. this one picture in my neighborhood of a fire. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that fire is just outside my house. That's yeah. the deli. Wow, it's on fire! And I looked down at the door of the deli, and they were open, like they were still going strong. <laughs> oh god! <laughs> it's like there's that's New York. Mm -hmm. Those guys never close. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Anyway, sidetracked. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, my my other groups are are more chamber oriented. Um, I was the co-founder of both uh, the New Thread Quartet, which is a saxophone quartet. Uh, we started in 2011. Mm -hmm. um, with the, We have four players in that group. Uh, Jeff Landman's a soprano saxophonist. Kristen McKeon's alto saxophonist. I'm on tenor, and Zach Hershen is baritonist. And uh, that group is committed to playing the music of New York composers. Nice. Um, we have a website. We take submissions. We do readings every year. Um, we, have, we do quite a few performances every year. About mm -hmm. half of those are are you know really modern experimental kind of the type of music that that um, we're we are uh, we're obtaining and and and, mm -hmm. and trying to um, proliferate and then there's there's about another half of that music that is you know older more traditional mm -hmm. um, or uh, specific audience specific you know mm -hmm. we um, and the model of, of that group is um, like we're we all love to play we all get together we're all you know we we really love the saxophone quartet. There's a ton of music for it, mm -hmm. and we um, we use a lot of the of the income from the the gigs we do to help commission mm. our music. So nice. it's not it's not like every gig is a full split for mm -hmm. all the players. It's like a lot of that goes back into commissioning and and getting the music out there. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a big performance coming up on June 10th, which is the first uh, of our new series annual series to be an annual series called explorations nice. and we have um a bunch of new pieces by new york-based composers we have scott walschlager ryan pratt um Jared flatley pat Muchmore, all doing really really you know kind of new modular and and, and experimental electronic based hmm. um very extended technique type music so um we're taking a you know real real uh sort of niche kind of <laughs> cut out of the of the pie there with that um nice. But yeah, that's June 10th at University Settlement. Mm -hmm. So if anyone listens to this before then, I hope you come. Um, and uh, and starting that group was, I mean, a lot easier than starting mm. Thing and Why. And mm. really, when when you think about the two different types of groups, one yeah. is an experimental. We don't we don't really know. We're not really defined yet. Mm -hmm. One is more of a okay. A saxophone quartet has existed in the past. What's the model? Well, it's pretty easy, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of music for it, and there's a lot of there's a lot of interest. There are a lot of young composers writing for that ensemble and, mm -hmm. and, and asking us to play their music. So there's the, th that's the difference. Nice. And, and before we go on, I'll tell you about my third group. It's called Hypercube. Mm -hmm. uh, we are a mixed ensemble. It's a quartet. Uh, it's saxophone, electric guitar, piano, and percussion. And the guitarist plays electric and acoustic. And the members of that ensemble are, so myself on saxophone, Jay Source, on uh, guitar, Andrea Lodge on piano, and Chris Graham, uh, who you might know from Ictus Percussion, mm. on on percussion. Yes. And that group is 
really into complex, hard, fun, energetic rep, and we do a lot of touring. So nice. Yeah, mostly touring. We don't play in New York as much as we play elsewhere, which is kind of a hmm. different thing. Yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah, it's sort of the idea of bringing that music out from from here to mm-hmm. other areas. So, but yeah, we do play in New York now and then. We just last weekend played at the Queen's New Music Festival. So there are, there there are New York performances, but. But co-founding that group has been, it's filled sort of a different void, at least for me, mm-hmm. in, the, in, in this way of, of sort of promoting the music outside of the city, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to just feeding back into this ecosystem that we have here. Yeah, it, it, we, we can be pretty insular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can be very insular <laughs> without our music making here, here in this true. city. It's true. Everyone wants to make some music. Everyone wants to do something. And at any given night, you'll have ten performances mm-hmm. that you have to choose between. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is just the way it happens. So those are the groups I play in uh, regularly. I also I have a duo with a percussionist named Dennis, Dennis Sullivan. Very experimental. He's also a composer. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of really, really... Um, really complex rhythmic but also very highly text-based mm. music and uh we're about to go on tour um in a couple weeks nice so uh there's that there's there's just different projects i work a lot with this group called um, music for contemplation hmm. in the city they do large-scale long-form uh music where there's a, a real um there's a real element of, of spaciousness mm-hmm. and silence hmm. to it um it's very, it's very meditative. It's very inclusive of outside sounds, um, and and uh, the pieces are durational for the most part. Very, just sort of sound and space driven. Hmm. Um, but I'm about to play this the, a piece by uh, composer and saxophonist Christian Kobe that is an hour long, and it focuses just on two microphones on a saxophone. The hmm. saxophone isn't affected at all, but I'll be mixing the feedback from a um. mixer. Interesting. And the extended version is an hour. Hmm. And it's just going to be the variety of feedback from the room and the saxophone. Huh. <laughs> that's going to create the, yeah, the, the music itself. So that's that's it. That's another type of performance. There's a lot of very different um, different sides of the of of the room that I like to play from. Yeah. 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 I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's New York. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where else can you really do this? Oh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> get, and get more than one person to come to your show. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but uh, you had asked me earlier about some of the different uh, ideas I had about just starting groups. and, and Starting and, and running uh, with, with uh, Jen Jolly, episode two, um... We talked a little bit about her, her group, NanoWorks, and having to periodically step back, take stock, and maybe refine the process, refine what what the what the what the organization is, what they do. Um, but yeah, like I'm always interested to hear because I've I've run I've run a, a concert series, and a friend of mine has a concert series that I'm now on the board of. Uh, I'm, I'm always interested to hear how these things get started and how they how they continue and how they they grow and evolve at, and become something and not become something else mm-hmm. yeah i mean 
it's it's tough. I think I think you have to and I would say don't don't start with with an idea that is not flexible. Mm-hmm. Unless you really, really know that it can work. It's sort of like starting a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and I mean, you have to be, you just have to be flexible because you don't know when you get together with folks, if you, if you decide you're going to start an opera company or mm-hmm. something, and, you, and the folks get together, you get your board, you get all of the right ingredients in the room. Uh, you don't really know how successful it's going to be. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of different, you know, variables at play you've got you know your audience development you've got your you're just running operations mm. there's there's the how do these people work together it comes down to very basic things mm. and so um <laughs> all of my groups and this is just it's been out of necessity but also the, just the willingness and need to start immediately have been started with very low overhead yeah. and when i when i think about thing and why we started i started with them by mm. getting together and just playing mm-hmm. um that's where that group from I started with with New Thread. Okay, we want to start a saxophone quartet. Let's get together and play a little bit. Mm-hmm. Remember, we rented a space mm-hmm. for a couple hours at like twelve bucks an hour at some rock rock band rehearsal space, mm-hmm. which was awful. But <laughs> but yeah, we just sat and played out of the gig books. We had um, some standard quartet rep. Uh, we sight read some new stuff that we thought we might be interested in. Then we mm-hmm. chatted, and uh, from there, it kind of gets to a place um, with with the hypercube. It was it was all about the rep. Mm-hmm. stepped in there was some great music written for this combination and mm-hmm. the players wanted to play it and and so there was that trial period of do we play well together mm-hmm. can can we do this mm-hmm. and if it works if it clicks then you move to the next thing um and then you start bringing in you know the idea of well where are we where are we performing mm-hmm. okay how do we how do we you know afford to do that are they paying or are we mm-hmm. you know are we getting grants for this we should start grant writing okay well we, now we're grant writing mm-hmm. well we've been we have this much money we need a treasure and oh we need a board okay well we need to develop more because we have this many gigs but we want more gigs mm-hmm. well let's you know let's get a manager let's let's get some more audience to our let's get a publicist and mm-hmm. it, it just grows naturally that way where you're not overextending at any point in time mm-hmm. you know it's not like this big cloud of money from above then you know creates the mm-hmm. the the uh, essence of the group it grows from the bottom up which i feel all of my groups have done and, mm-hmm. and that's what's kept them going mm-hmm. you know it starts and ends with that kernel of <laughs> love for the music yeah <laughs> so um that's that's what i would advise just you know d- before before these sort of visions of grandeur take off make sure that you have a core group of people that you can work with and mm-hmm. that offer and are willing to put in work um the other thing is you can't do it all by yourself. Drag the rest of them along. <laughs> yeah, God, yeah. I've tried that. <laughs> it, it doesn't work. Yeah. and it, Yeah. Um, I always insist when I start a new venture that it cost me as little as possible to start. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the record label. It, you know, all our, our expenses were the first album. And that, and we raised that money, and now that can that will earn us money. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, our expenses are fourteen ninety nine a year for our domain name, our web hosting fees, which also cover a number of other websites, so it's really low. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, it it's whatever project we do, and then we have to figure it out. This podcast mm-hmm. costs me twenty dollars a month to do for my Libsyn. Ho- uh, hosting yeah i bought the webcam i bought the microphone and the microphone stand and that's about it but 
but there's this a little like, overhead. Yeah, like I don't want to spend a lot of money to start a thing because if it doesn't work, if you if you're working with other people, and and you realize, oh my god, we're paying for this out of our own pockets, mm-hmm. either every month or every year, that we're constantly putting in more money and we're not. It, it's just it's a money pit. Yeah, you can all realize. Oh no. We've made a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. Especially if you don't click together. If you all click together and you and you decide, okay, these losses are acceptable because we love the the music that we're making. We love the the things that we're doing. That's a decision that you have to make. Mm-hmm. But if you can make that decision, awesome. Right. Right. Yeah. That, that's that's absolutely true. And I mean, the lower the overhead, the less. Mm-hmm. Just the less risk there is, and that's yeah. the whole thing. It's it's about your risk, mm-hmm. your your level of of, of extension. How mm-hmm. you know how you, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you, you suddenly you can't do other things because you're mm-hmm. overextended in one way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, that's easy, sort of easy for me to talk about, and in, in the way that I get to choose the music that I do mm-hmm. all the time because I work in publishing and I don't I don't rely on the music that I do mm-hmm. to pay my rent and to feed yeah you know, to feed me and it's just it's it's allows me to choose the groups and to do that mm-hmm. for the love so so yeah if I'm not making a paycheck from every single one of those groups every month that doesn't mean that that group isn't working out mm-hmm. so um I guess uh I guess I don't really know how to speak to running an organization where I've got employees and other folks who mm-hmm. are relying on an income from me yeah. and making that successful. I I wouldn't know how to do that. I will say the groups I've seen that have done that in the new music groups that mm-hmm. I've seen, I still I still believe they've started with this kernel of we love the music mm-hmm. and then we're going from here and we happen to have made it yeah, you know, I, really I, big. I think that is um well, I think that's how that's how ICE started. That's, yeah, absolutely. The, and and they just there. Was, I was reading uh, Andy Lee's post that he did on his, I think, on his own website, going back to his earlier. Um, remember that long period of time when there was the "No, you're not an entrepreneur." Right. Yeah. Yeah. The entrepreneur. Yeah. That when that whole. <laughs> Uh, Aaron Gervais had a couple of articles and, and there was a lot of firing back and forth on that. Right, and right. Andy Lee put out one and, and it talked about Claire Chase mm-hmm. in particular. He then went back on his own website and it's a really good you know, a- essay about sort of taking a step back from that, seeing what he was reacting to and putting it in a, everything in a different context. Oh, mm-hmm. Centered around Felicia Day. <laughs> um, but he, he, he goes on he, he talks about he quotes Claire Chase and, and she's saying yeah that, that's how how we started was we we just put it together and we loved it mm-hmm. it wasn't about you know our, our pay, paying our bills with, with right, the gigs right, right. It, it yeah it, I think it, especially in the beginning it, it isn't it can't be no it can't be if you want it to survive mm-hmm. I mean it might be a, it might be possible that that will happen and I think in the same way I mean we just have to realize I mean when she says that she's not lying that's exactly mm-hmm. what happened yeah but at the same time it's like that doesn't mean that if you start a group and you all really love the music that it's going to become ice like it no. just 
that doesn't imply that there's like a there's a logic break there and i think mm-hmm. that that's kind of where the tension starts to happen well just do this and this you know this not or this is what i did and this is how it happened um sort of someone taking that that simple statement and making it prescriptive to mm-hmm. another group of people saying yeah. well okay you know this person you know was able to create something large from something small mm-hmm. and this is what this person's saying so then here you go do that it's, yeah. it's sort of i mean everybody wants to have have a group that does that really loves what they do and makes mm-hmm. great music and that's understandable but um i think that the somewhere in in the game of telephone things can get lost there's mm-hmm. you know there, there has to be an understanding that you know, especially when it comes to education, mm-hmm. that, that you can't be liable for everything you say in a classroom. There's just there's there are things you can encourage, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and there's certainly there's a there are things that that seem to be generally you know more more correct than others. But mm-hmm. there's no rhyme or reason. There's no right or wrong way. Mm-hmm. And when Claire says something like that, that's her just sharing her personal experience. Yeah. And really, when it comes down to it, what's wrong with loving? getting together with people and making music that's oh. really the simplest and greatest thing oh it's it's wonderful i can't imagine any, any amount of money you know replacing that mm-hmm. wonderful feeling so yeah. there's just there's there's that yeah i think there's a th- that idea of having the prescriptive this this is you do this and then then you, you can make create a success it's that uh, what is it the, South Park had the underpants gnomes, was it? Underpants plus question mark equals profit. <laughs> I haven't seen that one, but I've, <laughs> I, never, I've never disagreed I, with the South Park episode yeah, yet. Yeah, so. many years ago, and I don't think I've even seen the full episode, but I remember that moment. And I, and I feel like we all for, forget, or we try to elide over the question mark, or we try mm-hmm. to say, well, you know, Ice had underpants, and this is what they did, and their underpants meant profit. Mm-hmm. And so let's do what Ice did. Even, yep. it, but even though we 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 weren't there to see the years of not being, you know, not being Ice, uh huh, and not being big and famous and and worldwide, uh, we see what gets presented to to us in a little article a little yeah. blurb about them and we say oh that that's the question mark like, mm-hmm. no <laughs> no it's true it's true i and and it's funny because i remember when i first moved in well this is before i even moved to new york my very first time in the city i was still a student at bowling green in ohio and i came over with a, a friend of mine uh, greg cornelius who is a saxophonist composer mm. and we got together with adam mirza who's a former alum of bowling green mm. also composer nyu uh, and Adam at this time was sort of like one of these guys in New York who was just putting together new music concerts and he was putting together concerts with Sharino and like mm-hmm. Lachenmann and a lot of these artists that were you know just kind of new to the US at the time and this is sort of right before like this is before cell phones and iPhones and mm. I mean I had a cell phone but that was kind of it it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't the same and uh, he Adam had organized this concert in a Brooklyn garage and he just did this stuff out of his pocket. He mm. paid players and got them together because he just wanted to put on really great music. And I remember my this was my my first time ever playing in New York City. I was playing a duo for, for flute, saxophone, and electronics. I was a saxophonist, and Adam had hired this flutist. Mm-hmm. And I remember this woman walk in, 
with cowboy boots and <laughs> just this confidence I've never seen before. Uh-huh. It was this New York confidence. And it was Claire Chase. And it was before Ice blew mm-hmm. up. I mean, Ice was there. I knew I had known about Ice through just another composer, but not. It wasn't, you know, the ice that it is today. Mm-hmm. I remember playing with her for the first, like, my first performance mm. in the city. Oh, wow. And maybe there is some rhyme reasons to why, you know, what drew me to move to a place like this. But it's that attitude. It's that we love what we do. We play this new music and we do it with a lot of confidence. And so no matter, you know, no matter how big they get, I, I, I truly believe and I know that they came from, <laughs> you know, small beginnings in a way where, yeah. you know, it's small, but it's no less, you know, it's no less than any other kernel. You know, there's a lot of energy there, and a lot of instinct, mm. and a lot of ability, and a lot of, a lot of ambition, and and yeah, yeah. That's really those qualities is what mm-hmm. is what makes any group happen. Yeah. And the uh, the idea of just continuing to do it too, that that perseverance, and you know, it's all of my groups, the ones that I'm with, have have held through because mm-hmm. of that. Is everybody's committed, everybody wants it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Nice. We are, I think, right around the hour mark. So uh, let's start to wrap up a little bit. Um, the one thing that I had asked uh, before we started, if there was anything beyond what I had already nefariously planned to ask you about, uh, and you said you wanted to sort of talk a little bit about performers of new music and some of the, the hoops that they have to jump through and explaining some mm. of some of the whys and the wherefores mm. of the, the the fees. Do you do you want to go into that? Right, right. Well, and this is something that it's a learning curve for for performers. Um, uh, it happens when you want to play a piece that's written by a composer that is published in some way, um, maybe not self-published, where they just send you the PDFs of the music that you're playing, but you know published by a by a publisher in a publishing house and it's uh, upon the performer to contact that publisher um, to uh, to obtain the music and um, that can that can be the simple process of going to Hal Leonard and purchasing it um, which is mm-hmm. Hal Leonard is basically a distributor for a publisher mm-hmm. uh, but it's a sale house it's a dealer a large dealer um, and uh, you can purchase the music there and, and perform it and that's that's all fine. Um, when it comes to larger ensemble music, it's important to understand that this music is, is rented in, oftentimes mm-hmm. and that you'll need to contact the publisher, get the score and the parts rented, which means that you, you get this music for maybe an eight-week period, maybe more, maybe less, and that that's a one-time fee and that that music goes back to the publisher in good condition. So mm-hmm. you, you have the rights to perform it, you have the rights to work with that sheet music and to distribute it to your fellow bandmates. Um, but that has to be returned, and mm-hmm. I, I think that um, <clears throat> that a lot of uh, it's hard to find sometimes. You know what publisher, who it is. Um, mm-hmm. If you go through the composer, they'll usually direct you to the publisher. Other times, you can go online and find out. You know what publisher publishes the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important to understand that when you're paying what might seem like a larger price for a, for a rental piece or a published piece, that the, that money is actually going to the composer. Um, in a large part, it's also going to the publisher. It's also going to the distributor. There are pieces of for every for every arm that touches that along the way to getting it to you. Mm-hmm. But that that money is paying for that performance, and that that um, those royalties are really what go back to the composer, and that's how the composer makes a living. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and sometimes it might seem exorbitant, and in some cases it can be primitive, and there, there are certainly situations in which pieces are not priced properly by mm-hmm. publishers, and, it, and it's, um, and it's a, a problem that I think is, is starting to go away a little bit as technology improves and, the, mm-hmm. and publishers look for new ways to distribute music. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't involve uh, like a box of sheet music mm. going coming across on a boat from <laughs> Germany to the U.S. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of times if you're purchasing music from um, a composer that's based in Europe, you're paying export fees within that price. So there's things like that. Things pile on um, for music, but but it's important to to do the research and figure out who is in who is in control of this music before just just programming it because if you don't get a rental fee a quote um something uh it, it can it can mess with the budget of, mm-hmm. a, of a performing organization yeah. so i just thought i'd um, mention that mm-hmm. um and if you can like work don't think of necessarily publishers as these you know large corporate um entities that you know just want to take your money mm-hmm. um there are most publishers are staffed with musicians like myself like uh like you um who are there because they love music and they want to make it available to everybody. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times if you get a quote back from a, um, a publisher that, that you know you just think is, is unreasonable or you just can't work within, just call them up or talk to them and say, hey, you know, this, we don't know if this is going to work. Is there any way mm-hmm. you know, to come down? And, and generally they're willing to work with you. And mm-hmm. um, at least in my experience, I've, I've, I've had positive positive feedback in that way when when someone's willing to call and work work with mm-hmm. you know with you on a on a price maybe it's an educational performance and the budget isn't there or, or not i'm not saying you know they're always going to give you a discount if you you know you're mm. selling a thousand tickets to the event yeah. there's going to be a reason that the, that rental fee is priced the way it is mm-hmm. so um and it's different for every performance that's the other thing is that it's not a standard rental fee for that piece it's not like if i buy the south of saxophone piano piece it's fifty dollars it's always going to be fifty dollars mm-hmm. With a rental fee, it can change based on, you know, the presenter, based on your venue, based on mm-hmm. how many people, the ticket sales. Mm-hmm. Um, include all of that information if you're contracting a publisher about a rental. So those are just a few, um, just a few hints for performing ensembles yeah. that are looking to do larger work. It, it, it's important to remember that the person on the other end of that email or that or that phone is it's another musician probably who they they get it mm-hmm. and. They might be hamstrung by policy within the company, but they're probably going to try to work with you. It, it's it, it's in everyone's interest to have that piece performed. Mm-hmm. It just may be that now's not the right time. Mm, maybe, and maybe, you know, you can't. But um, that's, uh, yeah, that's that's how these composers get paid. Mm-hmm. That's This is how they make their money. And yeah. You know, this is part of the it's part of the process, and if you can make it easy for everyone, I think you'll be happy as an ensemble. And mm-hmm. and sometimes, like I said, sometimes music is overpriced. I was uh, we were talking earlier about my yeah. <laughs> I went to buy an alto saxophone piano duet um, to play for the Milton Babbitt Centenary, and I the music was so expensive that mm-hmm. we actually chose not to do it based on the pay of 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 the performance. Mm-hmm. So it was priced at a level that was so high and and just knowing from my personal experience with publishing that Mm -hmm. there's really no reason it should be that high Mm -hmm. based on pretty much you know the unit cost (laughs) for printing that music Mm -hmm. it it would have had to go around the world three times i think to justify being that high yeah so um 
yeah, it can be prohibitive. And um, in those situations, there's really, there's not a lot you can do. Uh, library copies are usually available. Mm-hmm. Borrow a copy from a friend. Certainly mm-hmm. do not ever play off photocopies. Mm-hmm. It's not worth it. I know. <laughs> Especially if you're representing your ensemble at, mm-hmm. you know, a it, school or somewhere. It, 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 yeah, it encourages bad behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and the composer in those instances is unfortunately out of the loop. I have a I have a friend who has uh, a trio that he wrote in the seventies, and one of the big houses has it. And they, I, I don't remember. I think I've seen the contract, but I don't remember if they said in the contract that they would engrave it, but they didn't, mm-hmm. and they didn't make parts. So you, in order to perform it, you have to have three copies, and each and a single copy is priced at a hundred ten dollars. Consequently, no one's ever done ever it. Ever played it? Yeah. He's he wrote it off. It, it's just old enough. We had this conversation uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, there's that whole copyright reversion. Oh yeah, thing the copyright you, law. Yeah, that you can do after thirty five years or. Like there's a, a five year window, and it was, it just came into that window, oh. and I was I was poking at him saying like, dude, <laughs> write a letter to your publisher, like you know, go to your lawyer, have the, draft up this thing, and ask for the rights back. They're not they've not sold a single copy in thirty five years. You can get this. You have your own publishing interest now. Mm-hmm. Get it back, put it out there, and he. I, I was a little disheartened but I, I understand his response was but I've moved on mm. he no longer writes in that style it's, he write, he, his style is very different okay. now so I, I understand on, on that front so he's just said eh, it's a loss and it might not be worth the legal fees to yeah to, to <laughs> do all of that it, it, it probably it probably isn't I, I think I think I would feel the same way about a few of my yeah. A few of my pieces that, oh yeah, like I was really happy with it when I wrote it, and if it had been published, I would have been really proud. Mm-hmm. And then if nothing happened with it, I would I would move on. Right, right, right. Well, and then, I mean, the, mo- the publishing model has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, though I wasn't around then, um, in the 70s, it's just, it, I've noticed now that there's... Um, it's not so much about getting your music to a publisher in order to get it out there. I mean, mm-hmm. there there are ways to do that yourself yeah. online. I mean, Absolutely. and that's why I say there's a lot of there there's a lot of um, momentum behind the idea of self-publishing and a lot mm-hmm. of reasons to do it. I mean, yeah. you have full control. You decide. Mm-hmm. You know, if your friends are going to perform your work, you don't. You know, you don't have to beg the publisher to drop mm-hmm. the fee from four hundred dollars. You can tell them that they they can mm-hmm. play the music for free. They yeah. Can, yeah, I mean there there's making adjustments to the music or mm-hmm. even just getting copies out there and yeah. pricing at the level you want. Or or making an arrangement of it. Mm-hmm. That that that's a thing that always ma- makes me giggle a little bit that if if you write a piece and it's published, then um, I'm gonna keep talking while I stand up for a moment. Because I just heard a baby. Sorry, one of my cats <laughs> is locked in the bedroom. Sweet bug. Um, if you write a if you write a piece for for wind band, mm-hmm. now I'm back on the sofa. Uh, then if you want to do a piano version, and it, it is published by whomever, you actually need to ask their permission yeah. to do it, and they're legally entitled to say no. They're probably not going to because 
it would be dumb. But... Right, they could. Yeah, yeah, they could. Absolutely. And, you know, part of... There's, there, there are a lot of advantages to, you know, a publisher having the, con the control of the work is that mm -hmm. they have a certain interest. They have a certain I idea about, you know, what's going to work and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, some works are not going to be produced because they're just not, you know, they're not as exciting to, you know, a large audience. Mm -hmm. But, like, a, in your friend's case, contractually, that's something that should have been done by the yeah. publishing house, yeah. but wasn't. And, I mean, it's... It's hard because these publishing houses have huge rosters of composers, mm -hmm. and they're you know typically this it's not an overstaffed organization yeah. that has a lot of time and a lot of mm -hmm. I mean they're they're dealing um, with a lot of lot of music that's mm -hmm. out there and a lot of people coming through and, and writing new stuff and and um, yeah sometimes things will get lost in the mm -hmm. shuffle and that's I think there's a lot of cases of that happening um, with labels and artists mm -hmm. having their their music tied up with labels mm -hmm. and I mean this is we can sort of map this onto the conversation we were just having where you've got uh, <laughs> it's just better to start small mm -hmm. right start publishing your your works and, mm -hmm. and keeping control of them and if it gets to the point where you you can't handle that anymore mm -hmm. you're publishing so much you you know, you're you're writing so many things, and you can't. Not only can you not make parts, but mm -hmm. you know, like there are too many symphonies that are, you know, reaching out, <laughs> and, and yeah. too many orchestras that, and and so many ensembles that you you really need some help mm -hmm. in that way. Then maybe the idea of of working with a publisher, mm -hmm. you know, is a good one. Um, yeah. If there's like that type of momentum where you're, where you know, it's sort of beyond you to handle. And I've always looked at it that way from a personal level. Mm -hmm. You know, and and now. And this is something that I'm just kind of learning the scope of what's out there. There are so many different deals that you can make with publishers. Yes. And uh, Mark Ostro, who was on last week, he'll be coming back. Uh, I think I'm going to try to schedule him in July. And maybe maybe in that, uh, we still have a lot of fair use stuff to talk about. But at one point, we are going to talk about publishing. And when we went off air last week, he started rattling off the different types of deals that you can make with a publisher. I was like, I didn't know about most of those. Right. Wow. So it now it doesn't even have to be the, I sell you the copyright to this piece mm -hmm. at, in, in return for royalties and you know, right. your, being with your machinery, your whole network of distribution outlets and everything that you do it can be more of an administrative thing. It can be distribution only. It can mm -hmm. be you handle my rentals. Yes. It can be more of a piecemeal and not a just... Okay, take everything and take all the con all the control yeah. and I'll take the royalties if and when they come in. Exactly. And that's... It just makes so much sense. When mm -hmm. you've got these blanket agreements in the past, it's mm -hmm. like all of a sudden, you know, your friend has a piece... He's being guaranteed engraving and, and all of these things. Mm -hmm. And really, he could probably handle that. And the publisher probably really doesn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Whereas now it's like, oh, wait, why don't, you know, why don't you help me with just sending it to these people? And mm -hmm. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, 
I'll keep the copyright so that maybe later, if you mm-hmm. don't want to do all that work to it, I can. And it just it's its composers with its distribution agreements in particular mm-hmm. that are really beneficial and, yeah. and symbiotically beneficial. They're beneficial to both parties. Exactly. The composer wants to keep the rights because their piece might not be the most popular piece forever. Mm-hmm. You know, it might start that way and then later they m- might want control or they might want to change it. They mm-hmm. might want to do an arrangement. They might want to, you know. And, and if you have the, the publishers, just the distributor, then it's not... There aren't these other th- obligations mm-hmm. to do all of this legwork into a piece that maybe was famous twenty years ago, but isn't as popular now. Mm-hmm. And and it's just it's just better for everyone. And and you know if you can find those little those little areas where it can work for you, then mm-hmm. then why not? Like the model's really it's changing a lot, and it's yeah. in a healthy way. Yeah, I People think so. People are adjusting. I you think know? so. My my opinion my opinion of traditional publishing has really evolved since we sat down a few years ago for that lunch i think at that point i was really kind of hardline i never want to deal with that i i don't want to be published by a traditional publisher because and I, Mm -hmm. i could rattle off all sorts of bad things many of which are 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 probably more of a problem in the in the book world but i'm sure it's it's just you know it's similar on both sides of the that but now I'm I'm much more like oh there there are other deals you can make there are other ways of of working yeah. symbiotically have, having this sort of hybrid career like she keeps coming up and she's coming here on the show in two weeks Dale Trombor her her choral works she mm. she's a hybrid of traditionally published and then self published right which is and really it, interesting it, yeah it's fantastic and I I'm gonna pick her brain about that stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean it just if you're a composer and your you know your music isn't you know accepted by a large publishing house, it doesn't mean you're not a composer anymore. No. Whereas in the past, it was sort of well, you know, what am I doing this mm-hmm. for? Then why? You know, there mm-hmm. was it was just basically, you know, your your love of music. But now there are there are outlets mm-hmm. to you know continue to make music, mm-hmm. and that's encouraged. It's, yeah. You know, yeah, it used to be the the point of validation, right? As it was for labels and mm-hmm. recordings, mm-hmm. as it was for a lot of things. Yeah, but. So it was for podcasts and webcasts. Yeah, no. <laughs> now we can all have our own now TV we, now show. Now we do it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I think we should probably wrap up. I think we're about the okay. near an hour and a half. I keep going long, and I'm, I'm well, okay with it. There's lots to talk about. Yeah, I know, I know. It's never, never enough time. Uh, so once again, let's uh, tell us wh- where we can find you online. Okay, it's Aaron Rogers. I'm a saxophonist composer. Uh, my website is erinmrogers.com. That's E-R-I-N-M-R-O-G-E-R-S.com. Uh, Twitter handle is erogers23, E-R-O-G-E-R-S-2-3. And uh, Facebook, just look for Aaron Rogers, and I'm sure we'll have a thousand mutual friends if you're watching this. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you have a couple of things coming up, right? That's right. Um, actually, this weekend I have a, I have, <laughs> I have a, a problem. I have two premieres at the same time on the same day in different locations, <laughs> which is not is is was not planned that way. But as it worked out, um, I'm going to have to miss one of them. So that's a bit of a bummer. But the ensemble Load Bang. Uh, which is uh, a great New York-based ensemble. It's baritone, uh, bass clarinet, trumpet, trombone. Um, They're doing a show of monodramas at Greenwich House School, and uh, they're doing works by myself, a premiere of a 25-plus-minute piece, 
um, that I've written about. It's called Golden Parachute, and it's written um, just sort of highlighting some of the the aspects of the of uh, the high finance culture in New York. It's mm-hmm. four dudes in suits. Um, alongside works by Jen Baker, uh, trombonist composer, and John King, uh, Brooklyn bass composer. And it's sure to be a great show. These guys are amazing performers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's this Sunday uh, at 8 o'clock at Greenwich House. And then I also, at the same time, have a, a concert with New Thread Quartet, and we're double billing with uh, a duo, saxophone-guitar duo, um, Chris Creviston and Oren Fader are playing a piece of mine that i just written for them um, called Bandwidth. So uh, that's that's happening at the Firehouse Space at, uh, I believe it's 7.30, no, I believe it's 8 o'clock on Sunday. And um, and yeah, then then in a couple weeks, uh, New, Thread, New Thread's uh, performance I was talking about earlier, June 10th at, uh, at University Settlement Spire Hall. We'll be doing all new works. It's part of our new annual series of of explorations so check it all out and uh yeah yeah, i hope i hope you will awesome well thank you for for being here thanks for being my first in person sitting on the sofa guest Ah, happy happy to do so this has been very lovely i'm glad we got to hang out uh so thank you all for watching and listening and this has been the music publishing podcast You can find show notes and links to Aaron's website, as well as Thing NY, the New Thread Ensemble, and Hypercube at musicpublishingpodcast.com slash mpp5. I'm Dennis Tabensky, and this has been Episode 5 of the Music Publishing Podcast. Thanks for listening.